Who is this? We're going to reenact the black phone. Hello? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinema Faith podcast for October 2022. I'm your host, Jonathan Butrin, and I'm joined once again by the ghost of Christmas present to Tim Nelson. <laughs> what does that you even like mean? That? I know, I know. The ghost, it, is it the guy that eats all the food? Because that yeah, would describe yeah, me. Yeah, the ghost, of course, because it's almost Halloween, but the ghost of Christmas present because you remind me of that bearded jolly ghost in, oh, the, in the Christmas oh, yes. Carol. Come and yeah. know me better, man. You just, it's, yeah. I don't know. He's jolly and rotund. He's jolly and he laughs a lot. Yeah, and yeah. You just, you just want to hug him. Yeah, you know, that's how it always is with you. So yeah, there you go. The ghost of Christmas. I'm sorry for saying the c word in october that's ridiculous we should not be talking about christmas in october it's super offensive but just concentrate on the ghost part because it's halloween tim and it's time for ghosts and uh it is scary movie time tim we are we're in the season tis the season so we usually do our segment what have you been watching but i'm going to change it up this time Mm. so because if all goes according to this plan this podcast is going to come out like couple days before halloween so (gasps) if you had i know you don't love scary movies so you probably aren't going to do this but if you had to watch a scary movie on halloween what would it be if you had to pick one uh i okay so i have movies i like that would be considered halloween movies that some people don't consider halloween movies but and i think i've mentioned this before here it would be edward scissorhands oh because the most terrifying place in the world is the 60s suburbs (laughs) so (laughs) that's no but uh, that's my favorite movie for for, has like a kind of halloweeny theme it's got vince it's vincent price's last real role it's got johnny depp in it which is always fun winona Ryder, she's creepy (laughs) tim burton it's got all the good stuff to it so i i would say like probably Edward Scissorhands, it's about alienation. It's got like social justice themes, if you want to call it that. It's got the idea of trauma. All this stuff is all in this movie. It's an incredible movie. It's a little bit like biography for Burton. So I, that's my favorite one. Perfect. But what about you? You have an idea already because you, you asked the question. So I want to know about you. Well, I would say my favorite movie, favorite Halloween scary movie is The Shining. And I typically oh. do watch it every Halloween. And I probably will this one as well. I love that movie so much because it's sort of like Edward Scissorhands where <laughs> Red Rum, Tim's doing the finger from the kid. <laughs> Danny. <laughs> what is it, Danny? <laughs> so scary. Um, so yeah, it's a great movie. And I love it because it's sort of like Edward Scissorhands that like it's, it's it's beyond just a genre film. Like it's it's got all the spookiness and the scary elements, but it's like Kubrick just takes that movie to like high art. Like just you know the blood pouring out of the elevator and the the tricycle shot from behind when he's going through the hallways. I mean, it's just a beautiful like just well made movie. And it has Kubrick. It's a Stephen King story, right? Or not? I think it's a yeah. No, it's Stephen story. King. It's Stephen, and I know that because Stephen King hates that movie. I don't know yeah, why, does. but he hates it. Yeah, that's all right. We'll let, yeah. it, we'll let it be. And then it's got Jack Nicholson, Stephen King, Kubrick. Talk about everything coming together, whether Stephen King liked it or not. 
Uh, But I guess you pay for the story. You get to have it. Yeah. Yeah. And I get it. And I know Kubrick changed things. And if you're a writer and you've made up this story and you're passionate about it and someone changes it, it's going to it's going to upset you. But I mean, like it's so it's hard to be objective. But if he could be objective, I think Stephen King would understand that that is a work of art. So you love that movie. I do. I love it. And my son wants to watch it with me this year, which he's going on 15. Uh, So I'm at that place, you know, where it's like uh, I was watching my mom was a little permissive and I was watching like hard R movies when I was like 13 but I don't know I'm so in that Jonathan, yeah come watch this terrifying movie that has a lot of nudity with your mother I, well that's the thing that's the thing right like it's not actually a very violent movie but the thing that I'm worried most about is that scene right with that like uh, in, in the room 237 with the woman out of the bathtub because what's it's like you could fast forward it but it's like a whole movie leads up to this like scary room and he finally goes in there and that's uh, sex and death all in a scene right so this is cinema right here Sex and death. <laughs> Sex and death. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. What to, maybe I'll have him look away for a minute or something. I don't, I don't know. It's just uh, I'm at that place where he's like 15. I want to start showing him all of the the meat and potatoes of film. You know, we watched um, we watched the Green Mile the other day. We're get, I, so I'm like trying to avoid like you know full on Godfather maybe for another year or something like Goodfellas just a little bit just avoid like the the most extreme things. But like yes. we're in we're in R rated territory. So so maybe you I'll don't want to give him ideas so like yeah, maybe yeah. godfather now you're like no no don't do this just you're another too smart. year we don't want you to go this direction yeah don't put a horse in people's bed that's not appropriate yeah well there you go bad parenting decisions aside the shining is a classic and i will be watching the this halloween with or without my son so those are our picks so tim speaking of horror movies we have one to talk about today and that movie is the black phone so this movie came out at the beginning of the year, I think in like February, and I've been meaning to see it ever since because, you know, I love Ethan Hawke, and Ethan Hawke as a psychopath is just too irresistible for me to turn down. I have to see it. I have to see his take on it. So that's why I wanted to see it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, famously described it many times on this podcast, I think, is the one where Ethan Hawke kidnaps children, which is accurate. But anyway, so finally, after long last, we have seen this film and we are ready to talk about it. I guess we should probably fill in the plot a little more. There's slightly more to it than just Ethan Hawke kidnaps children. Slightly. What What do you do? You have you can elaborate just on the plot a little bit. So we're in um, North Denver in the 70s. The Front Range. Yeah, sure. So it's the 70s. It's Denver. Everyone's living out their Denver dream there. Front Range. And this is the era where there is no internet. So you have local papers and milk cartons and kids are going off, going missing off of the street. People are being grabbed into stereotype vans. And they're ki- classic kidnapper vans and never seen again. The whole town's freaking out. There's some inept detectives. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. And into this mix, we get thrown into the world of kids. And these kids have a, their mom has committed suicide and their dad is not coping very well with that. And he is drinking all the time and as a result is not listening well and being abusive to the kids. And so they have to rely on each other and their friends in order to survive. Yes. It's a boy named Finney and his sister Gwen. And they have the dad that is uh, alcoholic, abusive because their mom committed suicide. And so they've been hearing uh, all these kids are disappearing around them. They've been uh, the rumor is this uh, guy named the grabber. That's what they they nicknamed him is uh, taking these children. And Finney then comes face to face with this mysterious grabber lines up 
in the basement, and there is a black phone attached to the wall and it is completely disconnected from the power line. It should not be working at all, but it rings, and on the other end of the line are the former victims of the grabber. And that is all I will say. I will not spoil anything more until the Not end. all at once. Not all at once. We will spoil things eventually, of course. You know what we do. But uh, I'm looking forward to being spoiled. <laughs> so, yeah, there's your plot. So, Tim, let's just cut right to the chase, man. Ethan Hawke. All right. So, first off, I love him. I really do. Like, he's just a good guy. Like, not only is he a great actor who picks great movies and has put in such awesome performances over the years, but, like, in real life, he seems like a guy that you would want to, like, sit down and have a conversation with for two hours. Like, he's a cool dude. You get that vibe? Yeah, I think he's cool. I always remember him in Dead Poets Society. Right. What a resume. Dead Poets Society, Before Sunrise, Training Day. I mean, he's made so many great movies. Do you have a favorite Ethan Hawke performance, if you had to think of one? Probably Dead Poets Society, but I don't think that's his best performance. I just remember him the best in that. Well, I mean, like, he knocked out of the park in that movie. He, he was young, and he was it was a really sincere performance. I mean, if you just want to eat... You just, I recently YouTubed that one scene where he where Robin Williams is, like, trying to get poetry out of him, you know, in the classroom. Yeah. And, oh, it's beautiful. So, I mean, he was great in that. It, it is good. It was good. He did a great job for a kid. Oh, my gosh. He did so good i know and i would say probably i would pick before sunrise like the before sunrise trilogy if i had to pick a favorite performance of him because i just love the progression of his character jesse in that i love those movies they're just like it's so amazing that you can have a movie that is 99% talking and no plot, basically, and they're still just captivating because of the acting and the writing. It's 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 a marvel. It's like Woody Allen. Yeah. But so you probably aren't captivated by Woody Allen. <laughs> not anymore. I don't think anyone's captivated by Woody Allen anymore. He's creepy, but his stuff is still good, but he yeah. is creepy. I Anyhow, it's still a good movie, but yeah, there's problems. Anywho, I love his progression because like, you know, before sunrise, he's in his 20s. He's still kind of like dumb and young and optimistic about everything. And then you get to before sunset and he's in his like 30s. Like I can sort of relate to that where you sort of become a little disillusioned by everything. And then before midnight is beyond. So it's just a nice, it's nice seeing his character progress throughout those films. And that'd probably be my favorite, but there's so many to choose from. Yeah. And he seems to pick roles that are, uh, that would have some significance. That's why this is weird. Why he picked this. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he, for range or something, but I remember, was he also in the link letter, the boy when it's filmed yep, over boyhood. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Boyhood. That's what it is. I'm sorry. That's what I really liked him in that. Yeah. He was nominated for an Oscar for that. And yeah. he was also nominated for an Oscar for training day, which is, I think an underrated performance from him because Denzel just totally takes over that movie and you forget like how good Ethan Hawke is in that movie but like you need him you need him in that role that kind of like is this guy crazy maybe he's actually not oh he is you know that whole like he's kind of our yeah. mirror yeah yeah we're not sure is he one of the good guys is yeah he, is no. he breaking the rules because it's no. Just no he's a psycho yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. am i gonna make it out of this day yeah 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 so he was nominated for acting. He's nominated for those two, Boyhood and Training Day. And then he was also nominated two other times for writing for Before Sunset and Before Midnight, which is fantastic because 
they it's famously they said in interviews that Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke got totally screwed over on the first before sunrise movie because they basically took that script and rewrote it from the ground up with Linkletter okay. and they got no credit for it and they like didn't even get a screenwriting credit like and so they were really bummed out about it and because they were felt proud of what they accomplished and they should because it's like great writing. they came back for more yeah and then they came back <laughs> so, and finally got their Oscar noms so. did they get their screenwriting credit for the other ones they did, did well, they for the other ones yeah not for before sunrise but they finally got their credit for the other two and they got nominated for Oscars so there you go four Oscar nominations for Mr. Hawk that's a lot I know but yeah, he also, if you want to catch a glimpse of who he is in real life, I would recommend he was on a, a podcast I've mentioned on the show, I think before called Smartless with uh, Will Arnett, Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes. And he was on there, I would want to say about four weeks ago. And oh. he is was just talking about his life and his career and growing up kind of like, you know, making it big as a kid and like what that kind of did to him because jason bateman same thing with him they kind of related to that and he has great theater stories which are always fun the My theater <laughs> i know you're big into the theater <laughs> i just love hearing those stories because like you're in this live environment where crazy things can happen you know and so the one story that he told that i thought was really fun is that he was in this play once where like he was a junkie and they they made an artistic decision to have him sort of strung out on a couch at the very beginning as people were still filing into their seats like like he's just laying out on the couch in his underwear. And what he said was so crazy is that the people in the first few rows would like act like they were watching him on TV or something. They would talk about him right in front of him. And you would have these people in like the front row going like, I hate him. Like I've heard he's an, a misogynist. And like he's just laying there thinking like, I can hear you. <laughs> It's kind of like messing great. with the messing with the guards right at the palace. It's like you know you can <laughs> right. do it. You're like, ah, you he's at work. We want. can mess with this guy. Yeah, that is strange. So they they couldn't they couldn't they could they're just like disassociated. Like this is an actual yeah, person yeah. that they're talking about. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, if you want a little glimpse of Ethan Hawke as the real man, uh, check out Smartless. Uh, he, it's great. It just like that conversation is fantastic, and it just makes you yeah feel like this dude has a lot of wisdom. He's been through a lot of experiences, and I really enjoyed it. So, but anyway, sorry, I'll stop gushing. What did you think of him in this movie? Since we are here to talk about this film, go Tim. What do you uh, think? He got a little cage to me. Like he went too far. Really? Like, instead of. Yeah, I thought he was like he did just some some tip some stuff that you would do if you were trying to be psycho a little bit. So he's like, uh, ooh, ooh, like that kind of stuff. I I was like, no, you're more believable if you're quiet and bizarre. So I wouldn't have. I think some of his choices. I don't find him particularly scary either. Mm. Like just his, he's not that big of a dude, and he's also which isn't that he doesn't have to be because he's taking kids. But he also he's just so he's a good looking. They needed to put a mask on the guy, right? Because he's yeah. like, oh, you're so good looking. I mean, he could play. I know there's good looking serial killers, but at the same time, I wanted him to be a little bit creepier. I didn't. I think he needed that mask. The masks do a lot of the work here. There, there, there's no question that the mask is like ninety percent of the character, and they're they're great masks. I mean, come on, those are the creepy freaking masks. They are creepy. I don't know who made them. I, I didn't take the time to check that out, but. They are creepy. That it is freaky. I know it's like uh, looks like the devil, basically. <laughs> right. And 
I don't know. Like, I guess I'm going to have to disagree with you. I didn't think he came okay. across as over the top or doing too much. I thought he, it was the right kind of combination of this sort of fake kindness and mixed with brutal sadism. Like, I don't know. I thought I thought he nailed it. I thought it was my favorite part of the movie was seeing him. And maybe I was just predisposed to want to like it because I was so intrigued to see him in this in this role. But I think he did great. I'm going to stick by that. But I, I appreciate your take on that that's interesting i just yeah i, I found like i i like my um you know i like my serial killers a certain way yeah i know you did <laughs> so uh <laughs> and i and he he wasn't my I, what's the movie it's the lovely bones i think have you seen that oh, one? Oh yeah yeah sure that's freaky oh gosh that mean makes me just feel freaked out that, is that has i can't remember what actor it is maybe you remember which one but that's my kind of serial killer i want to say it's uh he, he's like that bald head, and yes. I, I totally picture him. Stanley Tucci. Uh, Stanley Tucci. There it yes. is. Yes. Yeah. That guy is my kind of child serial killer. Sure. I know it sounds strange to have a preference so on you that. You have a preference I, I on how to... child serial killers should act. I love it. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> want him to be like... Uh... Yeah, they need to have some like they need to be a little quirky. Yeah. And I thought this guy's quirky. I thought Ethan Hawke, the quirkiest thing about Ethan Hawke was... Uh... That he liked to sleep sitting up. Super weird. <laughs> but I know. That you was know? so bizarre. But I like I like that shot of him sitting in that chair, like with that mask and like his whip or whatever like that. I feel like that was like a super iconic horror shot. I do like the parallelism between the dad and the serial killer. Interesting. I didn't even put that together. You're right. Because he whips uh, his daughter with a belt, you know, because when he's on the stupor and whatever. And and it's on. It's in the kitchen and he's sitting a lot of times. They approach him while he's sitting with a drink. Wow. And this other guy is like, the, yeah. So I like that parallelism. That's a little psychological. So this whole, the, that there's this two sides to the father. There's like a super dark side that'll kill you mm-hmm. if you come, if you even get near him because you're naughty. But maybe you're not naughty. Maybe you're just trying to survive. So there's like this whole parallelism. I like that. That's great. And which is scarier, right? Is the psycho scarier or is the person who's supposed to love you and care for you who is sadistic, you know, has a sadistic Uh streak? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that was the most interesting part about those two characters had that they were walking the same, uh, like a path there. Yeah. And that that path would even converge in the end. Like you go, oh, weird. Okay. Uh, we could talk more when we spoil it. Exactly. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know as far as beyond that. Like what? I just. I thought he was just okay. I, mean, I didn't think. I think I like him better when he's just playing some some guy. It's so weird. Like it's kind of meta, right? Because like we we know he's Ethan Hawke under there, and we bring that to the table, right? And so to me, I feel oh, like I do, yeah, I feel like that changes your perception, right? Like, what if this was a no name actor who just like who just showed up? Like, you're right. I want to I want to say that. Like, you, I think you're absolutely right. That if I didn't know who that person was, maybe I don't think I would have liked it as much. But there was something about knowing that it was him kind of being creepy and weird that made it like elevated it for me. So I think you're right. Yeah. And on that front, that maybe just as a pure acting exercise, he could have brought more to the table. Yeah. But could you think like there would be somebody who could do a better job than him? I mean, like if you think about it, probably there's got to be some actors that would do a better job on that. Now, the the one I can think of is just I mean, he's blacklisted rightfully so because he is more actually like this character, which would be <laughs> Kevin Spacey. Oh, God, because <laughs> no. he actually is that guy. But but and he, of course, he's not going to play it, nor do I want him to. Yeah. But the, but the point being, like, you could have 
like a character that you could have a, an actor that has some, like a real, that you sense a dark side in. And I don't really sense that in Hawk at all. I didn't feel like, I didn't feel that from him. He didn't give us that. And maybe, maybe that's intentional, but I, I, I wanted like more, I wanted to be like more twisted and I wanted to feel it. I didn't feel it from, I didn't feel nervous about him much. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a valid take. I, I think I liked it a little more than you, but I will uh, put that caveat that uh, it could just be because I knew who was behind the mask. But uh, but yeah, all right, there you go, Ethan Hawke, talented dude. He, you know what? I was I was reading his IMDb page, and he's coming out with a film adaptation of a book I read this last summer, which is fantastic, called "Leave the World Behind" by Ruman Alam, which is this um, it's this story of the end of the world from a perspective of like this family in an Airbnb, like they're basically there's phone stops working. There's weird sounds in the sky. You could tell like it's all going down, but they're stuck in the country in this Airbnb with no signal. And it's like this really intimate perspective of the apocalypse. And it's, really great book and he's cool i know i know and he's starring in that with julia roberts kevin bacon mahershala lee so i'm really pumped about that i'm pumped now too you got me excited and our uh, website designer and friend dan, dan baker. baker thank you you got your shout out dan <laughs> <laughs> borrowed my copy of that book like two months ago and has not given it back dan i have not forgotten you better be reading that every night engrossed in it because it's a great book Anyway, he, sorry. he loves it. He's there. He's he's reading it while he's listening right now. <laughs> I hope so. All right. That's Ethan Hawke. Well, he's not the only actor in the Black Phone, so let's talk about some of the other actors here. So I was super impressed with the kid, the main kid, Finney, played by Mason Thames. I thought he carried the movie well and I thought most of the child actors in this film were bad, and I thought he was great. I did not detect any like false notes in his performance. I thought he carried the movie well. Do you agree with that, or do you have a different take as well? Oh, I, I liked him. Yeah, I thought he did a great job. Now, the sister, I don't know her. What's her name? Do you, do you remember? Her name is Gwen, and she's played by Madeline McGraw. Yeah, his sister. Yep. I, I liked her. Yeah. I she was she... good, but I don't know. There. Like, okay, she was good, and especially in that scene in the kitchen with her dad beating her and everything, I thought that was, like, brilliant, but, like, there were some moments with the whole, like, I don't know, riding the bike, praying to God thing that just felt a little bit, uh, con- I-, I don't know, like, I just feel like all the child actors except the main dude were a little bit inconsistent, and there were moments that were a little cringy. Yeah, there are some cringy moments with every single one of the kids where you're like, am I watching some kind of, like, Disney Channel programming? <laughs> just, like, <laughs> right? bad line readings where you're like, you're just, it's not, like, you need another take, and, like, they didn't get it, clearly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like the kid has to go and do their homework. They're only allowed to be on set for four hours. I'm going to need you to uh, say that, Lenny. Nope, it's over now. Nope. You got to Sorry, go. we lost it. Well, I guess that was the line. Okay. Can we edit that? No. Okay. Nope. They can be a little cringy. It's hard. I mean, kid actors are hard, right? Like, it's a difficult beast. And, like, every once in a blue moon, you get a Haley Joe Osment or a Freddie Highmore that just, like, knocks it out of the park. But for the most part, it's tough, like, to get good kid actors. And so, I guess. But the dude, the Finney uh, was great. And uh, everyone else, problematic. Yeah, just don't think the kids acting were up to, was up to snuff. And then you have the abusive dad and the alcoholic dad. Uh, Jeremy Davies played him. He's been in some things like Saving Private Ryan and stuff. But I think he was Ryan in Saving Private Ryan, actually. But uh, wait, isn't Matt Damon Ryan? Uh oh, yeah, you're right. 
God. <laughs> I was like, do I have this radically I'm so wrong? I'm so sorry. Like that Matt Damon. You're, you're totally right. You know who he was? The guy who played the dad in this was in was the dude in Saving Private Ryan who like he chokes out at the end. Like he's got he's like he could like save the oh, person at the shoot. end and he can't shoot. He just freezes up. That's who he plays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't he start out as like he takes a pencil with him instead of a typewriter? Yeah. Is I think that that's guy? Right. That that guy. Yep. Gotcha. Anyway, he's okay in this. I just feel like the character is a little shallowly written like something about it just felt a little contrived to me like his character and the whole like his wife had powers and it got passed down to the kids like it just felt like a screenwriting 101 sort of sketch rather than a fully fleshed out character i don't know what what was your take on him well he's got he does have a little dimension to him because he's sometimes he you you get this hints of that he, he was a good guy at one point even though he's just so awful now where he does take a little time to listen and he's really just trying to like block out reality. Yeah. So if the kids speak anything true to him, he's like, get out. You know, he like wants to beat him up and he's just mean, but yeah, I don't know. He was all right. I, I think he functions, like I said, he functions as kind of like a parallel to the, to the killer. And I love that. And I totally didn't pick up on that in my viewing. And now I like, I just like can't stop thinking about it. Cause that's so right. Is that like, yeah, you have this guy, this psycho killer and Ethan Hawke who wants to play uh, what, what, what is, what's the game they said? He's a, it's a naughty boy, right? He wants to like basically yeah. leave the door unlocked. So they'll go upstairs and then he beats them until they pass out. We don't actually see that, but, uh, but that's what he supposedly does with all the kids. And so then you've got this dad. Yeah. Who's <laughs> whipping his daughter. And it's like, Oh, that's such an interesting parallel. Yeah. Well, it's like if they get out of line or, or he or they try to leave his control then he makes him pay physically too mm-hmm. so that the killer's not so so far from the uh the dad Ooh, dark father themes psychology it's like what we talked about with turning red too right like there's a little bit of that in all of us where we want to control where it's easier you know as a parent to control your kids and you get upset when they don't do thing the things you want them to do and so there's a little bit of the grabber in all of us, maybe. I don't know if I want to. Yeah, that's a little wanna... bit too far. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to even. Yeah, I got to let go of that phrasing. So, sorry. <laughs> there's... yeah, yeah, no, no, no. You're good. You're good. There's I a know kernel mean, of though. that idea that like some that e- we want to control we have the people, potential right? for evil and control in our desire to get what we want or get, you know, get a sense of even like I would call peace or a sense of stability or whatever that we might harm others to get it. Ooh. One of the things that I kept thinking was like, these kids are kind of abandoned by everyone. Hmm. So you have like inept cops. The school is like always like, well, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to talk to your father about that. We talk to you and you're like, Oh gosh, now the kid's going to get beat right for like talking to an adult. And they don't listen. They don't actually, it's like the reality. And I think you see this in tons of Stephen King and you see it in uh, Spielberg is that the kids have their, a sense of what's actually going on. And for the adults to like get reality, they need to listen to the kids. So you get that in like ET, right? Yeah. You get it in, in uh, Goonies. Everything is like, yep. so that the kids are the key to every, uh, to finding truth or to, to the narrative itself. And that if someone would just listen to the kids, then they could figure this whole thing out. Yeah, and they are abandoned. Even like the idea that there's these kids disappearing right and left, and the adults aren't doing anything. It's like, oh, oh the daughter's still going to the sleepover as the like as the kid got grabbed the night before. It's like, really? We're not locking down our homes. We're not uh, maybe keeping the kids back from the sleepovers. No, no, no. It's just still free reign on the streets. No worries. 
yeah. So it is these, these adults who have seemed to just kind of abandon the kids. It's the detectives. I like how the kids talk to the detectives. They talk to the detectives like detectives would talk to a criminal. <laughs> Yes. That, no, that was good when that when Gwen, uh, the little girl, she, talked like, to the She detective. dressed him down. Totally. Yeah, I thought it was great. You think I'm the grabber? <laughs> it's like, do your jobs, morons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was just like, all right, this is good. So that's there's enjoyable moments. It does remind me of, like I said, the Spielberg movies. It has a Stranger Things vibe to it, which is because that's trying to be like Spielberg. And the idea of a b- kids that were are being systemically abandoned that get and they get a little bit of a voice in the movie. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, the story came from a short story written by Joe Hill. Do you know who he is? The son of? No. He is the son of Stephen King. So ah, the writer, so we've yes. rightly we've rightly we're in the ballpark. Come to the <laughs> Stephen King really wrote it for him. All right. No. No, he didn't. Yeah, no. <laughs> But so we're in that that space then. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So Joe Hill apparently is a pretty popular science fiction horror writer just like his dad and he wrote the story and this movie was based on that. So there you go. So yeah, so the, that's where the story came from from Joe Hill and then it was adapted by this writer named C Robert Cargill who works with Scott Derrickson a lot. Scott Derrickson is the director of this and he also helped write the screenplay. So this guy named C Robert Cargill and Scott Derrickson Wrote the screenplay based on this short story by Joe Hill. And uh, yeah, so, and they've also worked on things together like Doctor Strange, Sinister, and some movies in the past. So here we go. So why don't we talk about the writing and directing here? So Scott Derrickson is the director, and he, like I said, has directed. Uh, Quite a few horror thrillers. He, I remember back in the day when I was in college, he came out with The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and there was like one of those movies that everyone in my college went to see. And oh, you got to like, see this. It's so horrible. Well, it was, well, there was like Christian <laughs> themes in it, and it was like, oh. oh, this is like a Christian movie. I went to Christian college. We were always looking for these, you know, back then, we were always looking for these movies that were like, oh... This this is secretly a Christian movie honoring God, but they're using the we platform. can appropriate. Yeah, this we can for appropriate it. That's what it was. Systems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, there was that, and he did Sinister with Ethan Hawke and Doctor Strange. So he's done a few movies. I, what did you think about the writing and directing in this film, Tim? How did it hit you? Uh, before I completely bash it to all hell. <laughs> All right. So it did feel very, it felt like derivative. Yeah. And I know that's like the typical thing to criticize. Oh, it's derivative. Well, everything's derivative, but it seemed very direct. Like, so, so like, oh, black balloons. What does it have? Red balloons. Red, yeah. Come on, man. And maybe that's something like, hey, dad. <laughs> and then like, uh, <laughs> Um, I don't know. Right. Maybe that was in the original short story and like, okay, right. fine. It felt a lot like it. And the, the yeah. kids are the only, only ones that can, can help give each other strength. Yeah. And the parents are clueless, right? It's a lot like it. Yeah. And then like the idea of the victims helping solve the crime that actually is like lovely bones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the victim helps solve the crime. So these, these it doesn't seem like any of that's real, really new. The serial killer part that's been done a lot. It's been done. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that like, yeah, there's nothing really original here. And I just feel like 
the execution was severely lacking in all phases of the film production process I, from from moment one, like you know, starting with that baseball game, which is so on the nose with what happens later, and just you got your arm is mint, man. Your arm is mint. Like God, it's just mm-hmm. it's cringy, dude. I don't know. I was really not digging it. And then yeah, you got the kid riding the bike down the road, and then the van churns, and then we go to the credits. Eh, I don't know. Kind of a weird opening. Uh, the credits were okay. I feel like they were really trying to be like seven, you know, with that with that credit sequence, but it wasn't quite there. I don't know. Blah. We've already talked about the child acting, so there was a lot of scenes that I felt a little bit like blah with uh, with that, you know, leading up to the thing. Now, I think that once they get into the actual grabber thinny scenario in the basement, I think it's very captivating. Like I like like that's when the movie started started really working for me is when they're finally you know, doing a one-on-one sort of thing down there. But yeah. How did you like that? The, the uh, one of the characters has like, has the shine. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Didn't like that. Like, I felt, I felt very like contrived. That? No, I mean like, I think, I think conceptually, and this is the problem is that like, I feel like it's a good story. Like it's a really good story, right? You've got like the, I, just the idea of the whole, like, you know, the contacting the former victims and, like everyone kind of banding together to stop this guy once and for all. That's like, that's a great story. I just feel like it was completely mishandled and in every way possible. Like just like this is the worst version that you could have made of this story. (laughs) (laughs) Here's another thing, a little thought I had as you're talking about that. I was thinking about the phone. Yeah. Because we haven't talked about the phone yet, really, have we? No. I mean, I mentioned it in my in my plot synopsis. And why don't we go ahead and just issue a spoiler alert, because I want to get into some other nitty-gritty details, okay. too. So if you haven't seen this movie and you you know have never listened to this podcast before and you don't know that we spoil things all the time, then this is your spoiler alert. We're going to spoil you rotten. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Go ahead. What were you going to say about the phone? Oh, the phone is like this source of power. And I was thinking about, because my kid got his phone kind of wiped by us this week Mm -hmm. because he was uh, talking to the friends, right? And in ways that were not approved. So I won't get into that. I don't want to embarrass him. But the point is the phone for for kids now is like super powerful. It's the way they access their network of people who give them strength. And if maybe there's an abusive adult, the phone becomes this powerful thing, right? Because they can report it or they can capture things on there that might help liberate them or whatever it would be. So the phone's got all this power. And I was thinking about how the phone in this is like the way to, it allows him to access, well, the dead, right? Yeah. And the dead go here, do this, do this. But the dead are not just like have, they don't just have a view of the future. I mean, of the past, they have a view of the future too. So they know what's going to happen, which is so weird. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of outside time in that way. But I like the, the idea that this phone would connect you to something more than yourself and that killing this serial killer is a greater goal than just escaping. I like that from a theme standpoint. But the phone idea, the phone has power. It, it becomes a, the, the, the weapon even that, that to slay this thing. Yeah. And like, I like that. And that's interesting with your modern day example of like how kids must feel like their, their phone contains power, right? Like if you're trapped, you know, in your, in this, like you're 16 and you just want to be out of this house and you don't, you know, your parents are driving you crazy. It's like your phone is your access to something beyond your prison, quote unquote. That's interesting. Yeah. So I think that could resonate with like, if this is going after a younger audience, I don't know if it is or not, probably it is that that would 
resonate with them is like, oh yeah, of course the phone is the power. Yeah. We saw that in the movie that we reviewed with the cameras being the power. No, why am I forgetting the name of the movie we just reviewed? It was the one with the horses. Oh, nope. Nope. Yeah, of course. Nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah nope. Yeah. So the idea of like there would have a, there would be another object that had the power, which there's these power objects in all these movies. But yeah, definitely the phone in this one mm-hmm. and then the camera in that one. Yeah. I got a camera phone in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? No, that's good. So I don't know. I think that probably resonates with people from a, from a story standpoint. So here's the thing, man. What the heck was up with his brother living in the same house that he's bringing children to. What was up with that? That was the dumbest thing I have ever seen, like, in a movie. Like, I so, what, what was going on? Is that, like, his cover, do you think? I don't know. I thought about that, too. I was like, why? And then what did it, maybe it created tension? Well, but, like, know. how stupid do you have to be if, like, you're, you're, you're literally sitting in a chair ready to beat a kid when he comes upstairs and your brother's, what, like, three doors down? Like, what what is going to happen? Like, I don't understand this. Like, it just <laughs> makes no sense. Like, <laughs> surely this guy is smarter than this, right? Right? Like, I mean, how it, soundproof is this? Right, right. What do you do? I don't know. <laughs> his brother's piecing together all the killers with a map, and it's literally happening in his house. I, come on, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, that was. It seems stupid. He did say that. He said, "My brother, you know, my brother basically is an idiot, but he's my idiot." <laughs> Probably how my wife feels. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the it's there's something I don't understand why he was necessary. Maybe we they they needed him for the the ending or whatever, but I didn't, it's added nothing. It was stupidity. And then like, does the brother not notice the, like the bike lock on the front door? Cause I'm, unless I'm like not understanding or they didn't do a good job of explaining this house. Like it seems to me, it's the same exact living room, the same exact house. And it's like, sometimes there's a bike lock on it. And then sometimes there isn't when he lets the cops in like with a brother, yeah. you know, I, I just, I don't understand it. How did you feel about these track houses? So this is like in Spielberg a lot too. So you have, and it almost looks like projects that I've been to before, like these little, like in the South. Mm -hmm. And so like these, everything looks the same. So like from their house to the killer's house to the other house, everything's look, looks almost the same. So everyone lives in the same house, but very different things happen in different houses. (laughs) Very different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that was interesting. Yeah. I like the feel of it. Like I do, I'll give credit there to the direction is that I feel like the houses feel like creepy and authentic. It feels very seventies. It's good stuff. Just for you younger directors out there who are listening, of course, you don't have to put a pinball wizard in every single film and you don't have to, you don't have to like, you know, have the same soundtrack as everything that's trying to be the seventies. You you can, you can, uh, it can just be the seventies. You don't have to have pinball involved or, or, or lots of rotary phone close-ups. Yes. Okay. We get it. There was a rotary phone. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to take a close-up on it every time. That's all right. I mean, I get it if it's the black phone, but they're doing it with every phone. Right, every phone. Like the, it can just be a phone. It doesn't have to be, Oh, check that out. That's a, that's vintage. I uh, no, it doesn't have to be like that. Agreed. And then you got this dog that is there sometimes and then not there most times, but like conveniently it's there when you want it to be. But he brings the dog down for this like final confrontation and then ties it up for some reason. And so it's completely ineffectual. I he could have shut the door. Could have shut the door. <laughs> just like I you know, you could have just shut the door. That's an uh, option for you. And that whole final confrontation between Finney and Ethan Hawke just felt very 
rushed. It was like over in five seconds. And it's like, that's it. That's the movie. The end. I don't know, man. I just really did not like hardly any of the execution in this film. I wanted him to be dead. You wanted like, who to be like, dead? I wanted, a tw- I wanted a plot twist. Like, I wanted the ki- the protagonist to be oh, dead. Oh, Finny. And then, yeah. like, the, so, like, the I wanted his sister to solve the whole thing and then have him actually be dead. And she, like, you know. That would have been great. Yeah. It would have been right. interesting. Like, wouldn't that have been much more cooler? It would be a lot cooler. And then they all come together, like, at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi as ghosts. And then yeah. they just kind of like, hey, everybody, yeah, the give them a thumbs up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we could have it like that. Aiden Christensen just looking at the ground. Yeah, we could have it once there's like, you know, the fifth fifth one of these, we could uh-huh. have all the other actors kind of put in there. Right. But like right now, at the, you know, after the teddy bear picnic, we could have, we could just have all the, the dead kids show up and they could be like, good job. I love it. It's great. That's a way better ending than this one where basically it's just this weird, yeah, uh, the weird fight that's over in five seconds and then it, the movie's done. What do you think about the repentant father at the end? Yeah, I mean, I know, I remember it, but he says he's so sorry. And the kids kind of like don't even, they don't even give him his absolution, right? They're just sort of like. I don't think they have to, but yeah, I think that he's, his penitence is like important. Mm -hmm. So once that evil beast is slain, it's like the dad gets penitent. He's on his knees, man. I mean, it's like, looks like the Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal. He's on his knees, like Mm -hmm. just like a. And he's like, oh, he's so sorry. Mm-hmm. And he get and it, and it felt like, oh, whoa, that dad just like told those kids like, hey, I, I messed this up. I am so sorry. And it was to both because they both, especially the daughter, but they both needed to hear that. But she saved the family. Basically. She totally did. I wish they would have ended it there because then you cut to that stupid final scene where like the kid is in class and he's trying to. He's all confident now with the girl, and that's how you end the movie. Yeah, right. (laughs) What are you doing? Oh, man. What did that? That was a horrible last scene. Horrible. Horrible last scene. (laughs) What was the point of that? Did that wrap something up that I needed to have wrapped up? Well, maybe he's more more confident now. Okay. Oh, okay. But, like, come on. If they had ended with the penitent dad, that to me would have been That would have been way more powerful. And then it would have highlighted that connection a little more, I think, because I missed some of the nuances of that. And so I think ending on that would have been much more powerful. Yeah, man, I don't know. The whole thing kind of felt like a first draft of a script that needed about, like, 10 more run-throughs. And and, and then it felt like it was in the hands of a very amateur filmmaker from, like, you know, NYU doing his thesis project or something like that. That's how the movie felt to me. And then Ethan Hawke graciously agreed to appear in it because it's his friend of a friend or something like that. And is like, that how it is? No, that's how it feels to me. Up? But we're that's actually talking about a seasoned director. We're talking about seasoned writers, so that's not it. But to me, that's how it felt. This felt like amateur hour to me. And I just, like, execution-wise, it was really, really rough. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. Got to say, I'm not a huge fan of Scott Derrickson after watching this. Now, I don't, like, I wasn't a huge fan of him. I don't remember a ton of his movies i think i saw sinister maybe i don't remember but like yeah i this one was a total miss for me bummer all right well let's try to put the the badness of the film aside a little bit and try to find a little substance here i want to explore some themes so one thing that i think is true for a movie like this is it hits a bit close to home because like we're both parents you know and we've talked in past podcasts about pacifism and kind of being the ideal as a Christ follower and stuff. Right. And like, but also recognizing how complicated that is and how the real world doesn't always perfectly meld with that. And in that vein, there have been times as someone who is trying to follow the way of Jesus and trying to, you know, hope that if I was in a difficult circumstance, I would choose love over violence or hate. 
The thing that probably would be my biggest Achilles heel would be if someone hurt my kid. If someone took like my youngest kid, Zion or something, and like tormented them and tortured them or something, like I don't know how I would be able to control my rage, my desire to want to get back and hurt them in this, you know, back. And it would be very difficult. I would hope in that moment there'd be some miracle of God that would stop me from wanting to seek revenge. But like, so that would be, it's just, there's something about the innocence of a child being ruined that is, um, provokes something very strong inside of, I think most people, me especially. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, but, but it is weird that our reaction is to add violence to violence. Totally. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm above that. I, I would just say that the idea of adding violence to violence is a, yeah. Like what is, what do we get at the end? It accomplishes nothing. That's exactly right. And that, I mean, I totally believe that it's just that like in that scenario, if I would envision that would be the one scenario where I'm just like, you know, someone takes my beautiful son and destroys their spirit for life by doing terrible things to them. I would just be so overcome with rage that I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either. It is interesting that the dead play like a role in this. Yeah. Uh, and I think about that. There's so many people who have, who haven't escaped the horrible thing, but then they would help to vanquish it in some way is very interesting to me. So I think, I think about that, I think about the Bible and I think about history in that way, which is like, Oh, there's a lot of people that didn't escape this evil, but in some way they speak to the people who are trying to. And I, and I don't know, that's kind of a really med- gigantic view. You know, you always say 30,000 feet, but like, yeah. And, but there would be a hope that those folks would still have, have a voice somewhere, maybe not a black phone, but there would be a voice for them at some some place. And I think in scripture, we have something like that. Like even that scripture verse in Mark, I think Genesis that like the, the, the blood of the dead cries out to me, right? Was that when he's talking about Cain to Cain? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I think about in, in revelation, it's like, Oh, the like martyrs, right? People who were the innocents that were killed and like, they have this like different, they have like a higher, they're esteemed higher, and I don't think that there's like some kind of economy to any of that. And, you know, I, and we've talked that out before, but that the dead would have a voice. The innocent that were victimized will at some someday have a voice and will also participate in make the making things right, I think is a very Christian idea. Yeah. And it's a beautiful idea. And it's the idea that like nothing is wasted, right? That like you have these horrible tragedies that happen all the time and it's not just going to be brushed under the rug. It doesn't mean nothing. It, I feel like you're right. Like I feel like the hope is that God will somehow use all of that and even use these victims to accomplish justice, to accomplish full shalom and healing in the end of things, that they'll have a special place. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And maybe like it ain't over till it's over. I don't know. Like I said, the I don't know if there's an economy to it. Like this will equal this. And because of this, this is not a big deal anymore. It might be more that this and these things occurred and we can't really put a, we can't like say, okay, these like make an economy out of it. This is guns and this is butter. And if we exchange this redemption yeah. for this suffering, <laughs> right. I don't know if that's possible. But I do think I like the the idea that that God has a bigger story and that we and that the people who have basically been victimized and some to the point of death would have somebody that would champion them and that they could still be part of the story and that they would have their they wouldn't be gone 
their voices wouldn't be silenced forever, but there would be some, there would be, they would matter still. I love that. I mean, especially children, right? I mean, you think about like how much love God, Jesus had for the little children and like to think mm-hmm. about innocent children being gunned down at, you know, and Sandy Hook in Texas and just like there, there has to be a, a special place in God's heart for that. We're, we're looking at uh, other stuff. Like, so how many, like it's like, so we, so we look at some of those big things and this is from a national and sometimes an international view, but like slavery or where somebody uh, has been hundreds and hundreds of years of being silenced yeah. and not just silenced, but abused and, and murdered in a lot of cases and raped. And, and like, there's no record of that. Like there's nothing, nothing. And we have some, only a little bit. Right. And so that, that maybe God would have some record of that makes me go, because I think just there has to be something about telling the story in in a real sense of justice. It can't just be like our like we have this like John Wayne BS version of justice where we're like, well, if we murder the that guy, then uh, then the murder of our kids didn't happen. You're like, no, I think that doesn't that doesn't work at all. Right. It's like you said, violence adding more violence to the equation does absolutely nothing. There's that's not justice. Yeah. So I just I I wonder like is that. Na- for that narrative, like if, if somebody tells that story at the end of time and their story is told and, and it's exposed and we see what happened and we know what happened, if there's something there now, right now we we can't do that. We can't go back in time. We can't, I mean, there's sometimes there's, there's fossil evidence, archeology, span but to me, those stories are super important. Each life is so important. Yeah. And I think in our, in our narrative, we highly value human life, whether we act that out correctly or not, is that we do value life. And I don't mean just like that we're pro, you know, that we're uh, anti-abortion or something like that. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is like the, that each person really matters to God. Yeah. And so that, that it's, it's holistic. It's the whole thing. And so, uh, and then it's all history. So that's like a bigger view, I think. So hopefully this all matters. Right. Absolutely. And I don't know if that's even true that we fully value life because I feel like we value life to a point, but we wouldn't value the grabber's life. Right. It's like, you know, and, and I think that's what's so radical about when you actually step into real, you know, Jesus Christianity and loving your enemies. It's like, what if that person's life matters just as much, you know, and, and what do we do with that? Like, what do we do with, with someone who is mentally ill like that, who's hurting people? How do we, how do we love that person? You know, you think about that, like, you know, like the parable of the good Samaritan. I know pastors say this all the time, but like, you know, mm-hmm. he was talking to people who, really hated the Samaritans because they were evil, because they were lawbreakers, because they were like perverts of the law, right? And so like, and Jesus makes that person the hero in the story to mess with their, to their brain. So what if it was like, you know, the parable of the good child murderer or something? I mean, like, what do you do with that, right? Like, what if, what if the grabber is the one who stops on the side of the road and actually helps the guy and pays for him to, uh, you know, and then all the, all the pastors, you know, went on their way and, and ignored him. And so it's like, I'm just saying that, um, I think that you see that a lot throughout scripture, but that's the same. Isn't that similar? That's the story being told. What do you mean? So the grabber story gets told or the dad, he's mm-hmm. easier for me to access. I'll go with the dad. So the dad's story gets told. He lost his wife. He's, he has to try to keep things together, but he's afraid that his daughter is mentally ill. And so he's trying to say, stop saying those things. 
And the only way he's coping is to drink. And when he drinks, he he's, he's hitting his kids with belts. I guess it's, and, and then he feels guilty that he drinks, right? So like it yeah. gets, so his story is there, right? So he, he's got pain and he's putting that pain. He's hurting, hurting other people with that pain. And then those kids are getting abused and that's their story. So like, so to me, it's like, as the story, what I would say is like, like telling the story and having the story put right and be out there and having some kind of mediator for that narrative seems really important. I know we always are. One of the things that we do is we try to capture the narrative and then use the narrative like a weapon and it can be anyone. We're human beings, right? And then what I would hope it is at some point there would be like a, like a judge. That's the term, that's the term we use in scripture, right? Yep. So somebody that would have a righteous view of the narrative that could help us see it rather than us using it like a weapon like that to me would be, at the end of history, because at the end of history, we're all going to be alive or dead or whatever, right? I mean, d- depending on like what your theology, but like for me, it's like that there's going to be a resurrection and then we'll know the end of the story and that will, and then we, maybe we could get perspective on our little tiny piece of it and then have that, have that be given to us through a perspective that's not our skewed perspective necessarily. It reminds me of that scene in the shack where the... The father is so upset at his dad for abusing him and all that stuff, right? And he gets to this, like, point where he's talking with God, and God shows him, like, his dad's life, right? He shows him his dad, how his dad was the victim of abuse and all the things that his dad went through. And he basically gives, you know, um, the main character of that story, like, the choice, you know, what should be done? Like, what are you going to, like, you know, would she basically showing him, like, do you, in light of all of that you know now, you know, do you still want your dad to to basically be you know punished or snuffed out or do you have a better and so i guess it's the point is that like this idea that everybody does have a story there is a reason why the grabber became the grabber there's a reason why that father is alcoholic and abusive and god sees that big picture and that's why god can truly actually love all of us we see the behavior we see this small snapshot and we say you're evil you're dumb you're this and we instantly put people into categories and we write them off god never writes anyone off because he sees even you know anyone donald trump anyone that we would naturally want to judge he sees them as that little innocent four-year-old boy who you know is just running around you know and then was abused by his dad or who whatever whatever the story is i think i think there is i think i see some of that i don't know if I think that there is behavior that we do that could be so damaging that there will be some, there will be a judgment for that. Absolutely. Like that we would damage people. And so that, that doesn't, not saying that, and I don't know who knows what that looks like. I have to throw myself on the mercy of God because like I, you know, oh, what can I do there? You know, that's God's, that's the mercy of God. But that it wouldn't just be that if we knew all the very, I think the, t- the temptation is if we know all the variables then we can account for this. Yep. Which may be the case. Obviously, we can't know all the variables, but maybe it's not just accounting for it. Maybe there's something else, and that we that we can't access that would help us go. Well, will Hitler go to hell or whatever? And then, so there's something just about God's approach to it that we can't even fathom, even if we try to account for everything or like, oh, hey, we know all the variables. Finally, we can tell you what happened. Yeah, no, I agree, and and I think that's you know the number one pushback from people is that whenever you get into you know a, a plea for compassion for people who are behaving badly, it's like oh, so they just they just get away with mm-hmm. it, and then you know we're we're cool with that. And it's like no. 
I firmly believe that no one gets away with anything. I believe that every choice we make, every single minute of every day, either towards the direction of love or away from the direction of love, matters and because it affects our character and it ultimately affects the path that we take in this life and the next life. I mean, I, I firmly believe in some sort of, um, and it's probably super controversial for some people, but I believe in some sort of purgatory state for all of us after death where we have to go through some period of refining fire, some period of sanctification. I think that's what is meant by all that evocative hell imagery. And I feel like how long that takes and how intense and terrible that ordeal is to get to that refinement directly is a result of every choice that we have made in this life. And I think that that is why no one gets away with anything. Everyone will have to look in the mirror cosmically at every decision they've made and how exactly that impacted other people and feel the weight of that. So I think it's a mm. misnomer to say that uh, that that love and compassion precludes justice because I don't think that's true. Yeah. So I don't necessarily agree with you on that. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that's an orthodox view, sure. <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, I'm not trying to take that away from you. I'm just saying that that's, that's just a different view than I would hold. And to me, it's like there is a, the, if we have a grace centered theology, I do think that there is some element of that. Not everything that we've ever done is going to be, we're not, it's not going to be held against us. You're not necessarily saying that. I think we right? have to face it. I'm not held against us in the sense that like Jonathan Edwards, God holding our, you know, uh, us to over the fire uh-huh. to torture us or something. I just feel like we have to, if we haven't sufficiently like understood, I think the impact of our actions, I think we do have to see it in the next, in, in some form. And then, and maybe that can only happen in the cosmic next life sort of scenario. So I feel like we have to see the weight of what we've done and we have to grieve over it. I don't think it's held against us. Like as far as torture and punishment, I think there's a difference there, right? It's like when you wrong someone, you have to, in order for there to be true reconciliation, you have to see what you've done wrong and you have to want to you know, make amends with that person. And so I feel like there just has to be that step. And I feel like that's, that's how it, in some form that I don't know how exactly what form that takes, obviously. I feel like that's right, right, right. I always wonder if like some, the damage we do sometimes is so, we're so unaware because they think yeah. that we're doing the damage to ourselves and to others that it's even hard to see in like that. We may not even have a lens to deal with that hundred percent or to be exposed to it. And then, you know, I think about everybody always quotes the, we see, but through a glass dimly like the apostle Paul, I think it's true. Like we're like, even our perception is marred. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because we all grew up in a different situation. We all come here with a different physiology. All those things are different, but maybe that there would be a divine perspective. I think that's what we're trying to tap into at some point is that we want to like go, God, we trust you. You have the ultimate perspective on history. You have the ultimate perspective on these things. We will, we understand, we'll try our best with the faculties we have to understand, but we maybe, but we will, we know also like we trust in you and that there is a mystery to it. Just like there is Dale, most of doctrines in Christianity. And then we're, we're going to go like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll lean in, but we don't, we're not going to claim not like absolute knowing. Right. And I feel like there's a comfort in, you know, the Jews took comfort in God being the judge. And I feel like if we believe in a good God who loves every one of us, I feel like there is a comfort in that because that's like God will make everything right. No one just gets away with things. No blood that is spilled is just meaningless. You know, it doesn't matter. Like everything matters. Every choice we make matters, but the judge is a compassionate, loving, all powerful being who will 
in my view, not yours, I know, bring everybody to a place of redemption. And I find such great comfort in that because it's not brushing anything under the rug, but it's also saying that all of it will ma- will be redeemed and matter in the end. And so I don't know. I just think like that idea is beautiful. Yeah. And, and at, the, at the center of it would be Christ. So at the center, like that's how I, and, and that would be the point of trust because it, because like I said, we get, we have too many perspectives to be able to, to just trust our own perspective. There's too many good things out there. You know, we have to have access to something beyond ourselves. And I think that people are beginning to feel that I do. feel It's like, wow, I have so much information, but I have very little perspective and very little knowledge of what truth is. And I think there is something about like in this movie, the person that has the most truth is this little girl. Yeah. And she has it because she has like a direct revelation of this truth through her dreams. And, you know, that's that's in scripture. I think we shy from that, but that's in scripture. And then she prays all the time, too. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And she even like, you know, says some theological, profound theological statements that I happen to agree with where she's like, I know you can't, you can't interfere. Right. Like, and I, I agree with that. Like, and, and again, I know we've talked about this before and we disagree, but like, I agree with that idea that like, because of free will, because free will actually exists, God can't just, you know, stop terrible things from happening whenever someone makes a decision to do something terrible. But so he can't just like, unilaterally you know, stop things, but he does influence and he is not absent. And I think that's that's the beauty of it is that he does influence through dreams, through, you know, miraculous things like the black phone. I don't think that's completely out of the realm of supernatural things that can happen in this life. And so mm-hmm. that I think the idea that like God is he does not inter- he does not like lobotomize us and interfere with our free will, but he is far from absent and he's not impotent. He's in it all. He's with us in that basement when we're there and he is active and alive and helping us. Yeah. I like the prayers she prayed. There's some cussing in yeah. there, but I liked them. <laughs> Those are good prayers. It's authentic. Yeah. yeah. You F word. <laughs> yeah, right? Like talking to God. It's, she felt like God had let her down. It's it like, like modern so, day Psalms. That's how it is, man. I just hadn't heard that. And I was just like, whoa, that's pretty tight. Yeah. That's a pretty tight relationship. I mean, She's like, I did everything you told me, you know, like, uh, and, yeah. uh, that's pretty tight. I really, re- that resonated with me spiritually, that scene yeah, where she's has a dollhouse and she pulls out all the, her prayer items and she's talking to God and her first word is you F word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that's faith, right? Faith isn't like, yeah. we, we, I think we've really screwed up like our concept of faith. Faith is like, I don't like you right now, God, but I'm still talking to you. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like that's faith. Oh, she's, yeah. it's authentic. Right. It's like. And then she goes through all this, well, maybe you're, maybe worse, maybe you're not there. Like, and just goes through this funk before she is able to save her brother. Right. You know, and hear, and, and, and get the dream that she wanted. But it's just like a wrestling, like a prophet almost is what she is. And then wrestling with it. Right. But we've turned it into sort of this weird piety that's like, that's like my, my brother's missing and I'm supposed to be like, God is good. All Shine. is well. <laughs> it's like, what is that? But I mean, no, I think it's good. And I think that that like, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to think because I mean, gosh, Tim, I mean, like this stuff happens in the world. Like are you read the newspaper, like children are dying in the world today as we speak here. And it is terrible and it is awful. But the hope we have, the hope we have of Emmanuel, of God with us, of 
a future of redemption that is that's the only thing you can cling to and so in this spooky halloween season where we all concentrate a little bit on the darkness uh, which I don't think is necessarily bad because it reminds us of the light and it reminds us of the hope that we have that it's not the final word. Death is not the final word. And I think that's beautiful. All right, Tim. Well, there you go. What are your final thoughts on the black phone and your letter grade? Go. Yeah, it's all right. It's kind of kind of uh, has a lot of cliche and like derivative and it's... It wasn't what I thought it was when it got billed. I thought it was going to be freaking terrifying, and it wasn't freaking terrifying. It was just all right. And I don't think Ethan Hawke is particularly scary. That's another thing. So, you know, he's you You probably like, I hope he kidnaps me next. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> too, too real. Too real. <laughs> I know. I know. You're like, oh, boy. Um, <laughs> we talked about before sunrise. I hope he makes me <laughs> scrambled eggs and Sprite. <laughs> Put the mask on. It's so real. cool. Oh, no. Yeah, so I just, I didn't think it was so great. I'm glad I got to watch it on a streaming platform for two ninety nine in the in the mid-morning. Yeah, and not 20 bucks plus popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at night, and it'd been like, what? What's your letter good? Oh, probably C+. Plus. Yeah. There you go. I'm right there with you, Tim. As usual, we're we're thinking along the same lines. I was uh, super disappointed in this. I think it's a great concept that was completely ruined. I will say that I did like Ethan Hawke a little bit more than you. Um, I do think that he almost makes the movie worth watching. And I also like the acting from Finney. But it's just not enough. It's not enough. And I am completely agreeing with your grade C plus for me as well. If it wasn't for... Uh, Ethan Hawke and the, and the kid and some of those scenes in the basement that I do think did work, it would be in the uh, D or F range. So there are some scenes worth talking about. There's some good symbolism, like with like with the dad and and all of that. But uh, overall, this is a C plus film. Bummer. Let me ask you a question that has nothing to do with this before we end here. You gave it a C plus. We're like on the same page. We're too too much agreement between us lately. We've I guess apparently our palate has become the same. <laughs> Have you seen the movie The Truffle Pig? I have not. <laughs> or Truffle no. or Truffle Pig? No. So I, you usually give me homework because you you watch better, more movies. You have a little more streaming platforms than I do. But I think I think this Halloween you should watch Truffle Pig with Nick Cage. Wait, it's just called that. Mo- I did see that. That's just called. Was it just called Pig? It's just called Pig. Yeah. Oh, I did I was wrong. see that. It, yeah. And what'd you think? B plus. I thought it was a little overrated. See, I th- see, look at B plus. So you saw this pig movie, which I call it Truffle Pig because that's what they call that yeah. pig. To me, that was a fun movie, and we never talked. Have we ever talked about? We've that never before? talked about it, but I saw. I it. just think listeners, listeners should, if they want to watch something stupid, but it's, kind of not, it's stupid, not stupid. They should watch Nick Cage it. Cage gives yeah. a great performance. There's no question about that. It's <laughs> yeah. just, I just love. It. I just don't know. Yeah, I thought it was a little. I was expecting a masterpiece because the uh, hype about that movie was crazy. There was some hype. There was. Some so I was a little let down I there. I just thought it was yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was fun. So if viewers wanted to uh, watch some Nick Cage movies for Halloween, what would you recommend? For Halloween? <laughs> I mean, Nick Cage movies in general. I just went on a little bit of a Nick Cage bend. I rewatched Face Off and The Rock. So those are some classic Nick Cage <laughs> movies. If you want to see Nick Cage being crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah, I want to see him a little crazy. Yeah, you want to get him a little, get a little feisty. There's that one amazing scene in The Rock where he's in the jail cell and uh, and Sean Connery's you know getting them out, but he's like he's like, how in the name of Zeus's butthole <laughs> did you escape your cell? I only ask because it might be relevant. Maybe. <laughs> so it's like whenever Nicholas Cage freaks out, it's a good time. All right. <laughs> I love that. It's delivered so bizarre. That's the key to the whole thing. So I think that viewers should, uh, you know, if they have the option, they should watch a Nick Cage movie. Sure. I don't know if there's Maybe a Nick Cage Halloween movie. You could watch The Wicker well, we Man Mandy. and laugh. Uh, oh, Mandy. Yeah. Mandy wouldn't be a bad one. What? I think we both liked Mandy, right? Or was it bad? I cannot we remember. We, we both liked it, but we couldn't recommend yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> like, this is a sinful pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like right He's like fighting demons from hell. Yeah, that was a, that was a crazy movie. Yeah, that's pretty scary, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah I think Mandy would be your Nick Cage pick. Wicker Man, Wicker that's Man. scary. He's fighting the heathen. We, yeah. <laughs> the pagans. <laughs> Wicker Man is more if you uh, want a Halloween movie but want to laugh throughout it because that's like Nicolas Cage in turbo mode. We want to mention Dan Baker and Nick Cage Every as podcast. much as possible. 100%. They're both underrated. <laughs> but they're just underrated. Both they're both underrated. Yes. All right. Well, there you go. The movie is The Black Phone. It is streaming on a device near you. Tim, I think, said it was two ninety nine on Amazon, if, which uh, is, is about right. So see it at your own risk. Uh, we do not recommend it, but maybe, just maybe, we're wrong, and maybe there's some hidden gems in this film that we missed, and if that's the case, please email us. Our email address is podcast at cinemafaith.com. I recently got an email from a dude named Josh, and he was just shouting out to us from Michigan and saying that he listens to the show and he likes what we do because... He likes hearing people talk about film, but a lot of the podcasts, like, people swear all the time, and he liked that we were relatively clean. And so, uh, yeah, he was just saying, so hi to Josh from Michigan. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you. He wrote in, so. Josh, we're, di- we're dirty on the inside. <laughs> we're dirty Josh. on the inside. <laughs> we're not always clean. There's been some moments, no. but. Thanks, Josh. Yeah. I really do appreciate it. I'm glad you like it. Exactly. That's great. So if you want to join Josh and write to us and let us know your thoughts, the email address is podcast at cinemafaith.com. We'd love to hear from you. So Tim, I know I say this at like every show now, but like there really are good Oscar movies in the theaters now. Like in November, we are going to watch what? a movie in the theater is that is good. I don't know what yet, but I just know that they're there. They're there now. So we can stop uh, watching schlocky streaming movies and we can actually see a prestigious film in the theater. So <sighs> it's going to be... It would be good. It's, it's be good. We have no idea what they we don't are know what yet, they are you yet. You're going to have to probably travel though to maybe one of your art house... Uh, theaters across town oh <laughs> no i'm gonna have to go see something worth seeing and see spend time else. and money yeah oh i wanted to watch most casually <laughs> you love the streaming you want to bake that cake while you watch i know no i want to bake a cake yeah bake a cake mail some letters you know shop online while i'm watching a somebody's masterpiece yes, yes those poor directors all right keep the faith my friends we will see you next time